morning, have a seat. Good to see you, happy Thanksgiving. I was asked uh, a bunch of times if I'm preaching the 10th commandment today, no. I'm gonna do that next week. Today I wanna preach on Thanksgiving. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, I pray that you would give us hearts of thanksgiving. I pray, Lord, that as we learn from Paul and see examples both in history and in Scripture of individuals who ooze Jesus, the aroma of Christ, may that be true in our lives. Father, guide us, we pray, not only through your word, but to live it out each and every day. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As Americans, you and I are quite fond of Thanksgiving. We're quite aware of it. We learned about back in grade school the first Thanksgiving in 1621 in Plymouth Colony. We learned that William Bradford and the colonists were entertained by some Indians who graciously brought some food and together they celebrated a Thanksgiving meal. What you may or may not know is that most of the colonists saw that as a one-time event, but others saw that as an annual event and continued on. Yet there was no national holiday. In 1777, General George Washington came to the Continental Congress. He came in late October. It was a strategic time, and he asked the Continental Congress, can we designate a day, Thanksgiving, a national holiday, to thank the Lord? And the Continental Congress said no. Now, it was quite strategic at the moment that he did it because we had just won the dual battles of Sarasota, both in September and October, and the tide of the war had shifted to the Americans, and we would win the Revolutionary War. So he wanted to celebrate a national holiday, but the Continental Congress said no. Fast forward to 1863, the 16th president is President Abraham Lincoln. He designates the fourth Thursday of November to be a national holiday, to be a Thanksgiving day, a celebration. Now think of the year 1863. We are in the midst of the bloodiest war in American history, the Civil War from 1860 to 1865. Think of President Lincoln, a terribly unpopular president. If they had taken numbers at that time, his numbers would have rivaled any president as a disliked president. He was hated. Certainly the South hated him. Most of the battles were in the South and the South was ravaged and destroyed. Most in the North hated him. 
The Civil War was a war of attrition. The reason the Union won is because it had the factories and it had more people, but it lost most of the battles. That made Lincoln a very unpopular president. Think of his Secretary of Defense, Edwin Stanton. His wife, Elizabeth, is the first to publicly call Lincoln the original gorilla. How'd you like that as your moniker? General McClellan, one of his best generals, said publicly of Lincoln, he is stupid, he is lazy, and he is the original gorilla. The Charlton Mercury newspaper called him the orangutan in the White House. One of the congressmen from Virginia publicly stated that he's a cross between a sandhill crane and a donkey, but he didn't use the word donkey. He was called many, many names publicly. And 1863 is a bad year. I think the only good thing in Lincoln's life in 1863, and I'll make this argument in two months, I think that's the year that President Lincoln came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as his personal savior. The land is destroyed. The nation is destroyed. His fellow leaders are mocking him. The newspapers are mocking him. One of his children has already died. The second Edwin would soon die. His marriage to Mary Todd is not going well. His wife is probably clinically depressed. And it's at that time he declares a national holiday because God is worthy of praise, because God is worthy of worship. A day needs to be set aside to publicly worship this great God. And so in 1863, we're given a declaration. Understand in the South, this is a union holiday and most in the South will not celebrate Thanksgiving until the beginning of the 20th century. That's how hated Abraham Lincoln was, not only in the South, but also in parts of the North. A day set aside for Thanksgiving would that be how you would respond to perhaps the worst year of your life? Is that how I would respond? Would we ooze the aroma of Christ? Would we desire to thank God in the midst of a difficult time? That's what we have in Scripture. Somewhere between a year and a half ago and now closing in on two years, COVID hit our country and I immediately pivoted to the book of Philippians. I don't remember what I was preaching, but I knew that we needed joy and so we went to Philippians. You remember, Paul is under house arrest and yet the dominant word is joy. Listen to Paul, what he writes in Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. And I step back and I say, really? 
Paul is under house arrest. He's chained between two guards. He has absolutely no prison, or excuse me, no privacy for months on end. He is chained 24-7 all of his days, all of his nights, all of his life. He tells us he doesn't know whether he will live or die. He doesn't know if he's going home to heaven or if he's going to continue in ministry here on earth. And he says, I rejoice because the gospel has gone forth. This is a man who oozes the aroma of Christ, who won't allow circumstances to damper his thanksgiving heart to God. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor. He was part of the Confessing Church. Think of Nazi Germany. Hitler begins to take some power in 1933. By 37 and 38, he's a very powerful man. He soon will be a dictator. And by 1943, he stops the voice of the church. He arrests the few that have stood against the Third Reich, the confessing church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is taken to a prison, Flossenburg. If you've been to Berlin, it's 50 minutes public transportation to Flossenburg. In that camp, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, is a British officer, and he writes this. He said, Bonhoeffer always seemed to me to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy, profound gratitude. He was one of the very few I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment and the thoughts and the resolutions it had brought us. He had hardly entered his, ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, President Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all prisoners. It meant the gallows. He turned to me and he bid me goodbye. He said, this is the end. But for me, it is actually the beginning of life. And the next morning, they hung him in Flossenburg. And if you go to the concentration camp in Flossenburg, you can actually see the spot where Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred for his faith. And I think of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Paul and Bonhoeffer. And in spite of circumstances all incredibly adverse, they found reasons to praise God. They found reasons to thank God. They found reasons to ooze the aroma of Christ. And that's what the text today is calling us to. I don't want to play light about the last 18 months or where some of you are today. Some of you are going to lose your job either December 5th or January 5th if the courts do not continue the stay. Some of you are in the medical field tied to Medicare and Medicaid and, and you're going to lose your job. Some have died. We've done five funerals that are COVID-related. Some have been on the COVID unit. We've had about 15 
in our church. Many have had COVID, hundreds and hundreds, most with very mild conditions, and we praise God for that. Some have not been able to travel when you normally would. Your life has been disrupted. You haven't seen parents or grandparents, or you've been separated from grandchildren. And I don't want to minimize any of that. That's incredible pain, and it's real. And it's real not only for those in this room, but those in our country. Some are very angry at how we respond, and that's real. And some feel a loss of liberty, and some are on the opposite side and feel just that some did not act as they should, and there's a lot of divide, and and I don't want to minimize that. But I know that regardless... We are called to ooze Christ. We are called to be the aroma of Christ. We are called to have hearts of worship, hearts of thanksgiving. That's what Paul tells us today in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read verses 18 to 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In keeping with the spirit of Ephesians 5, what Paul does is he says, there is a way in which the world often acts and there is a way in which Christ's followers ought to act. We should not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but we should be filled with the Spirit. And although the emphasis is on be filled with the Spirit, and it will be the emphasis of the message, I don't want to move too fastly past the first phrase, do not get drunk with wine. It's an interesting word. It's uh, a synodoche is what it really is. It's It's a grammar, which means that we have a part that represents the whole. The part is don't get drunk with wine, but it represents the whole of losing control of one's mind. Let me put it this way. A synodoche is like a piece of pie. Some of you are going to have a piece of pie on Thursday. Some of you are smart and you're going to have one Wednesday and cheat. (laughs) A few of you are even smarter and you're going to have two or three pieces on Thursday. May your tribe increase but you're not likely to eat the whole pie. You're just going to have a part of the pie, but not the whole pie. That's what a synodoche does. When he says, don't get drunk with wine, what he really means is don't be engaged in any kind of activity in which you and I lose control of our body and our mind. So let me illustrate it this way. We have states now in the union in which certain drugs that used to be illegal are now legal. And so sincere Christ followers might say, well, because those drugs are now legal, we can imbibe, right? And the answer would be no. Not if those drugs would cause one to lose control of one's mind where one is not focused on the Lord, not having thanksgiving in one's heart, 
not making melody with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, not living a life of thanksgiving in Christ. That's what a synodoche means. When it says, do not get drunk with wine, it's really referring not just to alcohol, but any kind of substance abuse. Now, one of the wonderful things about Highland is that we're in all sorts of states of growing in Christ. Every week, practically, someone will greet me at the door and say, Jeff, four years, five weeks sober. Praise the Lord. Or someone will say, you know, it was a bad week. It was a bad week. I've got to get back doing the things that God calls me to do. And if you struggle with substance abuse, let me tell you, there is victory available. There's victory through Christ. There's victory when you get some medical help and some counseling help and you get a sponsor. There's victory when you stop frequenting places that are detrimental and maybe you cut some ties with individuals of whom you have imbibed with. There's victory when you depend upon the Lord and you confess, agree with God that substance abuse is a sin and in the power of God's spirit, you begin to turn from sin and towards the Lord. There's victory. So Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. That's not the way a Christ follower is called to live. But instead, be ye filled with the spirit. That's where the emphasis lies. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means this. It's when we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm about to tell somebody about you. I don't have the right words. Would you give me the right words? Empower me to say the right thing. Or Lord, I'm going to go serve in this capacity and, and I need to serve with the right motive and the right attitude. And would you empower me to do what is right and what is good? That's what it means to be filled. It's not a charismatic, anti-charismatic phrase. The word is plerao. In the book of Acts, every time we have being filled that results in tongues or prophecy or hearing, it's pimplemi. It's a different word. Being filled is a, a word for Christ's followers who want to say the right thing, who want to do the right thing, who want the aroma of Christ to flow from us. It's something we ask for on a regular basis. The second is it's actually a command. It's an imperative. It's in an imperative form, which means I am commanded, you are commanded, if we are Christ followers, to regularly say, Lord, fill me. We are never in Scripture commanded to be baptized in the Spirit repeatedly because that's conversion. It happens once. We are never commanded in Scripture to be gifted by the Spirit because God does gift us at the moment of conversion and maybe later on in addition. But we are commanded to be filled because we play a role. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, will you fill me? Will you give me the words? Will you give me the energy? Will you give me the strength? And we need to confess. We need to keep short accounts with the Lord. Confess our sin and repent, turn of it so we are clean before the Lord as we ask him to fill us to do the work that he calls us to do. The third observation is it's in the plural. It's for all of us who know Christ. It's not just a Green Beret Christian 
who is like so far up there, we don't know how to get there. This is for all of us. We are all regularly called to say, Lord, will you fill me with your spirit? Will you help me with the right words as I, I discipline my child? Will you help me with the right words as I interact with my spouse on a touchy issue? Will, will you empower me to serve in this capacity in a way that is pleasing to you? We're all called to be filled. Fourth, it is passive. Although we play a part, we have to ask for it. We have to confess and get right with the Lord. It's God who fills us. We can't do anything of significance spiritually unless God works through us. And finally, it's in the present tense. That's the iterative tense. It's not one of these things I say, Lord, will you fill me with your spirit? Amen, got that out of the way. Now I can go on with living. It's something I do on a regular basis. I regularly ask God to fill me to be the best husband or the best parent or the best grandparent or the best pastor or whatever you fill in the blank for you. We're asking God to do this in our lives. And when we are filled with the Spirit, we begin to ooze Christ, the aroma of Christ, and we make melody with our hearts. Have you ever noticed certain Christ followers? They just... They just ooze Jesus. And then there's others that not quite so much. And we're attracted to this group that oozes Jesus. And we want to be like them. And I suspect that they're in the word more than I am. And they're in prayer more than I am. And they're in corporate worship more than I am. They're confessing more and repenting more. They know God more. And they're asking God to empower them on a more regular basis. Those are the individuals who have hearts filled with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is how you and I ought to live. This is the fourth time I preached this morning, and I've said the same thing all four times. I wonder what I did with verse 19 25 or 30 years ago. You see, this verse was used during the worship wars about 25 to 30 years ago. A lot of evangelical churches went from a predominant diet of hymn singing to a predominant diet of choruses, like this service. I was just in a hymn service. A lot of divide. And I wonder what I did with this verse. I hope I did not cite it in the midst of worship wars. Psalms and hymns, and we got to get to those spiritual songs. We're lacking that in the church. That's how it was used. But that's a misuse. There's three words given, and they're all synonyms. They're synonyms. If you look at how these words are used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, there's no difference between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They're just three words to make emphasis. So why does Paul give us three words? It's not about three different services. I've done three different types of services. I've done a contemporary, I've done a mask only, and another contemporary, and a traditional. Three different types. It's not that. We're given three words, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They're just stacked on one another, synonyms to say, Jeff, this is of emphasis. This is important. This is how you ought to 
ooze the aroma of Christ. You ought to be somebody that oozes Christ and what comes out of you are psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms. Is this true in your life? Do you ooze worship? Do people know you as a worshiper of Christ? My wife, who's here, and doesn't know I'm about to say this, so I'm in trouble. <laughs> My wife is a worshiper. If you get up early when she gets up, and you're still in the house, and she doesn't have to go anywhere, she starts with praise music, and then she, she spends some time in the Word, and she actually reads some commentaries from time to time, and she has a little kneeler that she prays on, and, and she's a worshiper. Dave Mahler, he's a worshiper. My office is before his as you walk down the hall. I always know Dave is in the building. You know, he's singing a mighty fortresses or God or some kind of chorus. I can hear him the moment he steps into the office and he thinks when he gets in his office and he shuts the door, that works, but I have a wall between us. I still hear him. <laughs> he's a worshiper. The early church had worshipers. How do we know this? We have a governor, his name was Pliny. And Pliny, we don't know much about, but he wrote a letter that we still have. It was to Emperor Trajan in 112 AD. And in it, he said, when these Christ followers to get together, they antiphonally respond with a psalm of him, a spiritual psalm of praise to Jesus as though he's God. That's what a Roman governor wrote to a Roman emperor. And if you've been in Israel or you've been in Europe, lots of things that Trajan built. He's a builder. So he's well remembered in history. But he's not a follower of Christ. But he knew about Christians because a governor observed what they were like. They oozed the aroma of Christ. I think of Tertullian. He was a great African theologian in the second and early third century. He wrote this. He's talking about some kind of, of meal together. And he says, each is invited to sing to God in the presence of others from what he knows of the Holy Scriptures or from his own heart. In other words, before they ate, they would sing one to another, what they had learned in devotions that day. Now, I am not going to sing to any of you as entertaining as that would be. But the point is this. God calls us to ooze the aroma of Christ. Is that you? Is that me? Sometimes when we talk about worship, especially in the last decade, we talk about vertical worship. In fact, there was a book, uh, McDonald wrote it, called Vertical Worship. And I think he probably took it from Galatians 1.10, that we serve for an audience of one. Vertical worship is real. We, we serve for an audience of one, but that's not complete. Because there's also horizontal worship. Pliny, a governor, talked about it when he saw people antiphonally singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to Jesus as though he were God. Tertullian talked about it when people would sing of the scriptures they know. Paul talks about it in verse 19, addressing one another 
and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Certainly our worship is vertical, but there's also a horizontal dimension. We get that from our worship leaders who are singing praises to God, but they're inviting us into corporate worship. And that's how we ought to live. The aroma of Christ flows from us so that we, by our life, invite others into an attitude of worship, which results in giving thanks always, verse 20, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to conclude with a few thoughts on giving thanks in all things. What does it mean to give thanks? First, I think it means I've got to stop focusing on what I don't have. Part of the American dream is always wanting something bigger, something better, something shinier, something somebody else has. Somehow thinking that God dealt us not the best hand. Someone else got better cards than us. And I think that's what the enemy of our soul wants us to believe. The enemy of our soul always wants us to look around at someone who has bigger, brighter, shinier, newer, faster, better. But instead, I think God wants us to look around and see what he has done in our lives and for us to be filled with attitudes of thanks. And that leads to the second point. We need to daily take time to thank God. It says really in 1 Thessalonians, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God. Here on the stage, it says, give thanks to the Lord. And we ought to do that. But how do we give thanks in all things? I think of Acts 16. In Acts 16, we have Paul and Silas, and they're in the maritime prison in Rome. I wish I had looked it up because this is from my recollection, but I want to say that the maritime prison is 25 feet down. It's a hole in the ground. And when you're lowered in the maritime prison, which Paul and Silas were, you're not there very long. We have people in America that get life sentences. We have people in death row for sometimes decades. That's not how it worked, the maritime it might be how it worked when Paul was imprisoned between praetorian guards under house arrest. But if he's in the maritime prison, which he is in Acts 16, he's only going to be there a few days or weeks at best. They're not going to feed him. He's going to get no water. If he gets food or water, family members or friends need to bring it because you don't feed you in the maritime prison. What's going to happen is you're either going to be exonerated and released or you're going to have a capital offense and be put to death. You're not there very long. Rome is not in the business of entertaining prisoners. There is no gym. There is no cable TV. It is a miserable, miserable place. And yet if you read Acts 16, you have Paul and Silas singing. And I think, what? Really? And Paul says, "In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Are they going to thank God for that hole? No, I don't believe so. Are they going to thank God for being arrested, for preaching the gospel? No, I don't believe so. I don't think that's what in everything give thanks means. I think what it means is we look for the silver lining. So what can they praise God for? There were two of them rather than one. At that moment, they were still alive rather than martyred. If they are going to be martyred, they're going to go immediately into the presence of God. 
They're looking for the silver lining. I think that's what we do in difficult times. That's what we do in adverse times. We're not to thank God for everything that goes on around us or every decision our government makes or the disease that seems to affect a few very significantly and most not so much. We don't give thanks for a disease. We give thanks for a doctor or a nurse or a hospital or medicine or that we have been healed through it or kept from it. We find the silver lining and that's what the text is talking about. We want to ooze the aroma of Christ. We can be embittered and angered by so much that is going on around us or we can see what God is doing in spite of it and what he wants to do through us to impact a world for his glory. Which side am I on? Which side are you on? Third, I want to learn to keep a mental list of what God is doing in our life, my life. When I pray, uh, some of you pray Acts. That's not my preference. I pray the acronym CATS. I think it's theologically correct. Because in Psalm 66, it says, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear me. And so I've got to start with C, confession. That's how I ought to start my prayer. Confess before the Lord. And then A, adoration, adore him. Then T, thanksgiving. I want to keep a mental list of what God is doing. And then S, supplication. Think of that. Confession first. Adoration, thanksgiving, and supplication. And compare that to how sometimes we're tempted to pray. And we have this laundry list of what we want God to do. And at the very end, we say, Oh, Lord, you are great. Praise you and forgive me of my sins. Amen. And it kind of feels that way sometimes. And so I find cats to be very valuable in my life. But as part of that, I want to keep a mental list of what God is doing and thank him for it. And finally, I want to better celebrate Thanksgiving. Celebrate what God has done. About 20 years ago when we moved here, I think we were here a few weeks, maybe a month, month and a half, I don't remember. And Jolene walked into my office and said that one of my kids had been run over by a car. And that was a very long drive to my house, not knowing for sure if that child was alive or not. As it turns out, that child suffered a a broken arm, was in the hospital for a night, and had a number of blood vessels broken so that that child looked red rather than white for a few months. But after that, there have been no ill effects. And so Betty Ann and I thought about it, and we thought, how do we celebrate Thanksgiving? Well, Matthew 6 says that where my treasure is, there my heart will be also. So the way we decide to celebrate it is we wrote a check to a Christian organization above and beyond what we would normally give just to thank the Lord. I want to learn to celebrate 
Thanksgiving. Thursday is Thanksgiving. I wonder how we're going to spend it. Are we going to eat turkey and watch the Lions lose again? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. I like the Lions losing. They're one and eight. But I think it's more than that, and I think it's more than a day. I think we are called, I'm called, to have a thanksgiving heart, to be a little less critical and bitter and a little more thankful to the Lord, as I trust many of you already live out. Let's ooze the aroma of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, may we as a church, as families, as individuals, ooze the aroma of Christ. May we be filled with thanksgiving and praise. May we be less angry or bitter or judgmental or critical and more full of thanksgiving for who you are and what you've done, not just on Thursday, but throughout our lives. Help us to take the next step in being thankful. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.